Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. This coming January, the United States military will celebrate the 50th anniversary of the abolition of the draft and the emergence of the all-volunteer force. Over the last five decades, civilian and military leadership has wrestled with several fundamental questions, such as how do you build a force that both reflects the society it defends and also maintains its connections to that society? How do you defend a free society with volunteers without relying on a permanent military caste? Through peace and war, the armed forces have managed these challenges over the past five decades, but scholars and analysts continue to monitor the pressure points and potential seams in this garment. In a recent commentary for the 24 August issue of Military Times, one of my colleagues at the U.S. Army War College, Dr. Allison Abbey, has identified concerns within the services that contribute to the stresses on the all-volunteer force. Some policy questions, quote, have made the military more insular and less appealing over time. In the military's war for talent, she concludes, current policies are a source of unintended friendly fire. Such an important topic requires broad discussion among specialists and the interested public, and for that reason, we are delighted to have Dr. Abby join us today to discuss her recent commentary as well as her broader work on talent management to consider the future of the force and its meaning for United States national security. Dr. Allison Abbey is Professor of Organizational Studies at the U.S. Army War College and teaches courses in strategic leadership, inclusive leadership, and defense management. She previously served in defense and intelligence organizations as a research psychologist and program manager. She holds a Ph.D. in social and personality psychology from the University of California at Riverside, and we're delighted to welcome her today. Welcome to A Better Peace, Dr. Allison Abbey. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for hosting. That's great. So, Allison, what led you to become interested in these questions of, you know, very broadly speaking, military talent management? So um, I have a, a background in uh, training and personnel research from uh, my first uh, foray at the Army Research Institute for Be the Behavioral and Social Sciences. Uh, and more recently, I was interested in the issue of recruiting because the recruiting numbers this year are down the Army is projected to miss its recruiting goals by about 10,000 personnel uh, for, for this uh, fiscal year and is projected to miss recruiting goals by almost uh, 30,000 uh, by next year. So the, the, there's a lot of discussion in the media about the contributing factors to this recruiting shortfall one of the factors that's been discussed recently is the um, high employment rate in the private sector. And so the military is challenged to compete for uh, young adults with the private sector, the high employment there. Um, but 
because my background and my interests uh, fall within the defense enterprise primarily, I was interested in what is it that we're doing internally that might be affecting this issue, uh, looking at this from a generational perspective. And so not just what's going on with the economy uh, in this, this year and last year, but looking more broadly, what decisions have we made from within the defense enterprise over the last 20 to 30 years that could have led us to this point, because this isn't the first year that we've had some recruiting shortfalls. The Army has been struggling with this a bit, um, and the percentage of young adults who are propensed to serve is very low uh, as a percentage of the population. And we're finding that because of the physical standards and behavioral standards that the services have, there's a, a smaller percentage of young adults who even qualify for service. And so they're, the, the challenge that has emerged over a generation, that's not just a recent development. And so the small percentage in com combination with uh, the broader economic context has made this a, a real crisis at this point right. in time. Because when you talk about these generate these changes over the generation, so we're saying things like people who've taken ADHD medications or people who have tattoos or people who are obese, right, are, are right, disqualified right. from the start. And so- right. uh, I have I have a series of questions on that, but I want to uh, ask a broader one first. In that is, how does this particular op-ed that you write reflect to your current or previous academic work? Is this part of a larger research project that you were engaged in on uh, 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 internal policies? Um, I had previously worked at the Institute for Defense Analyses some years ago, and uh, we had uh, done a study at that point on veterans' preference. And so that I had some background in some of these policies previously, not looking at them necessarily from the recruiting perspective, but uh, looking at some of these policies from other, other perspectives. Mm -hmm. And at that point, we were interested in the question of uh, how veterans' preference affects the diversity of the civilian uh, employees in the Department of Defense. Mm -hmm. So this was a, a complementary but um, slightly different take on some of those issues. Gotcha. So uh, a question about recruiting. When we talk about missing recruiting goals or, or recruiting shortfalls, um, am I correct there that we that, that number relies is mostly about um, uh, initial enlistments? Um, and is there a difference Correct. or a concern at all between, say, the the number of people who are enlisting and the number of people who are seeking commissions in the armed forces, or do those numbers just mix together? Oh, the, so the end strength numbers set by Congress include everyone, mm -hmm. but when they're talking about the recruiting, we're primarily talking about the first term enlistments. Um, the officer corps has not had the same challenges mm -hmm. with recruiting, and so we kind of separate those out as almost two different issues and look at officer recruiting differently than enlisted recruiting. Okay. Um, and so uh, you bring up a good point about those uh, first term enlistments. So th the services would be having an even greater problem meeting their in strength if it weren't for the improved retention that's happening right now. Yeah. So we've um, 
been able to uh, kind of mitigate some of the recruiting shortfalls with higher retention. And so it's not that military service is just completely unappealing to young people. It's just getting them in the door in the first place that seems to be the biggest challenge. Right. Well, and and I'm glad you brought that up because I had recently been looking into work on that. The the idea that retention so far is solving part of this problem or is masking part of this problem. But of course, and, and, and obviously the armed forces are interested in retention in and of itself. Um, ideally, right, mm-hmm. you want to both get them in the door and keep them once they come in as much as possible. And so then let's get to the the three issues beyond recruiting that you mentioned in your piece. Um, our quality of life programs on military installations, the military accessions of immigrants, and the question of veterans' preference in civilian hiring. Um, those three items come, come up in the op-ed. How do they relate to these questions of uh, policies that need to be adjusted or should be adjusted or could be adjusted to improve um, accession and retention? So those three issues are areas where um, the defense enterprise could look uh, beyond the recruiting <clears throat> enterprise itself mm-hmm. or recruiting bonuses and things like that mm-hmm. to make some adjustments. Now, they can't adjust all of those things on their own. Uh, veterans preference, any change to that would require congressional involvement and some of the other policies might as well. Um, but the insular nature of military installations is an example where it's it's not so much a problem that these benefits are being provided to military families, but we should be considering whether offering benefits like commissaries um, and other programs is are there trade-offs associated with that? Mm. So are we improving retention perhaps by providing all of these services and benefits on military installations, while at the same time we may be hindering recruiting in the long run because those military families are not interacting in the civilian community as much as we might hope. Uh, So military service has become a bit of a family business and there's been a lot of uh, concern about that, but we're also seeing you know, that military families are almost retreating to installations where there are lots of programs and services that may enhance retention, but harm recruiting, and and not in the short term, but in a generational sense. I mean, I, I, when I first read your piece, that I was I was struggling with with understanding that, but I like the way that you phrase it there. That the things that we do in order to make military life better for people who are choosing that life. Um, they also do uh, unintentionally. We talk a lot when, in strategy formulation about second and third order effects. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. required to mention right. that, right? Yeah. So, um, uh, <laughs> uh, but that, that uh, a second and third order effect is if I'm only shopping at the commissary. So nobody ever sees me at the local, uh, at the giant. Nobody ever sees me at the Walmart. Um, what does that do for uh, it? It further creates the idea of the military as a closed environment. How could right. such? How could the, we'll start there with the with the quality of life uh, programs? How could one imagine um, uh, reforming those programs in a way that right doesn't just tell military people, "Sorry, we're taking away this this benefit we used to give you," but how do we mm-hmm. how do we manage it in a way that can still show respect and still get all still get positive retention elements, but encourage that kind of uh, connection to the outside world? Um, so they could, instead of running this network of commissaries at uh, installations that are in the continental United States, they could provide additional 
financial benefits in the term in terms of the subsistence allowance, for example, to enable families to shop off post. Mm -hmm. That might be one consideration um, that just providing uh, compensation that would enable service members to get those same uh, benefits, but from the local economy where they would be engaging with, with civilians rather than just on installations. You and I work on a military installation. We are both uh, civilians. Am I correct, Allison, that you, correct. you like me, right, have never, have never worn a uniform? Correct. And it is, it is an interesting experience because as a civilian employee on a military installation, right, that we, we see military people more than many other civilians. But even here, right, there are interesting distinctions, right? And we can't shop at the commissary or the PX. And I'm not lobbying that we should be allowed to, but it does right. raise those, those interesting questions about when you create that, that kind of very clear distinction. And of course, right, if we are, if we accept in a volunteer force that we have to incentive, we want to incentivize service because that's what we have to do in order to encourage people to do it. How do we incentivize mm -hmm. service in a way that makes, makes people more aware that these incentives are available to others who can join this organization, right? Rather than just emphasize, you know, what you get when you're already inside. So that's what I think is, mm -hmm. it's not recruiting yeah. per se, but it is about, you know, how do you, how do you encourage enough awareness of military life for the civilian world so that someday somebody can say, you know, that's a, that is a legitimate choice I could make. Yes. We want ideally more contact with, between military personnel and the civilian community. And so whatever we could do to offer the same kinds of benefits, but do it in a way that, that supports service members participating in their civilian communities would be a, a, an improvement that maybe gets both, uh, achieves both goals. Mm -hmm. So both the retention and the recruiting goals. Now there's some installations where there's not much available in the local economy aside from that installation. So for example, if you're at Fort Irwin, what the local economy has to offer is very different than if you're at uh, Joint Base Lewis-McChord, for example. Right. But do we have very similar morale, welfare, and recreation programs on both of those installations? I don't know. So that, yeah. that's the kind of comparison that you might want to do is what does the local economy have to offer service members so that they can better engage with the civilian communities that surround the installation so that more civilians gain knowledge and experience of what military life is like. Um, there was a survey uh, recently that showed that about 75% of, of young adults said they really didn't know anything about military life. And so that, that's something that we certainly could improve with some policies and programs that encourage greater engagement outside of the gates of the mili military installation when we can't really bring civilians on post because of security concerns. So we're really going to have to get military members out into the communities since we can't bring civilians inside unless they're working in, in the Department of Defense. Right. Well, and which gets to uh, a couple of the other uh, of those uh, three points that you mentioned. I want to ask about the, the, the role of military accessions of immigrants um, and, and how that figures into your uh, assessment of uh, of uh, army management policies, where does where does that fit in? 
So that's another of the generational concerns about recruiting. When we have lower birth rates of U.S. citizens, as we've seen over the last 15 years, birth rates have been declining since about 2007 pretty consistently, uh, then your future workforce is going to be draw more from the immigrant population. Mm -hmm. And we've had immigrants serve in every conflict uh, since the revolution. That's really been a constant in in military service in the United States. Uh, In the last administration, the military accessions vital to the national interest program was uh, terminated and then was not, has not been revived in its same form. Uh, And so that's a missed opportunity. Having some continuity in that kind of program could be a real benefit to recruiting so that we're we're drawing from the immigrant talent. There are people all over the world who are still interested in coming to the United States, and many of them are are willing to serve uh, to improve the odds that they will gain citizenship and that we should uh, consider that as a strategic source of uh, recruiting to maintain the all volunteer force in the future. This I this particular topic. I mean, I, this one in the veterans preference ones, right? This is what I found so fascinating about your piece and and uh, provocative in the right kinds of ways, right? Because it gets provokes critical thinking. Um, the 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 political challenge of the uh, you know, ex- the accession of immigrants is uh, it, it gets to the heart of sort of difficult issues of, you know, what does it mean to be an American citizen? You know, what does it mean to be in a society mm-hmm. where, where uh, if the native born are not being willing to serve, are we essentially, you know, is the, what, what's the difference between mm-hmm. the accession of immigrants and the hiring of mercenaries? Um, or, you know, the, the examples people give mm-hmm. of, you know, the, the Roman Empire um, encouraging tri- uh, you know, tribes on the other <laughs> side, along the border, say, hey, you want to come become a Roman citizen, and then you can defend the border that you used to live on the other side of. Um, how, in what ways do you think the military can sort of confront and discuss, you know, and sort of honestly deal with these concerns that there's, there's just something kind of uh, uncomfortable <laughs> about bringing in non-citizens and offering them citizenship. I, I think that's a, it's an important communications component mm-hmm. of any such program is that it, it should be clear that we're not bringing immigrants in for the purpose of serving. Right. They have to be permanent residents to qualify uh, for a path kind of path to U.S. citizenship through military service. They already have to be here. Right and be permanent residents to qualify, we wouldn't be just going going abroad and finding folks to, right. to bring to the U.S. and train and serve. And, you know, that, that that's not the kind <laughs> of program that I think we want to encourage. But for permanent residents who are interested in serving their adopted country, I think it, it's a really viable path forward. And it's not so much that, you know, U.S., citizens don't want to serve it's a in the future there will be fewer of them native born uh, if our birth rates are low and that's a pattern with a lot of industrialized nations that as as the uh, standard of living increases in the in the nation the birth rates drop and parents invest more in fewer children and so then you just have a, a smaller base of native born citizens to recruit from in the first place. And so if you're going to maintain the all volunteer force, then immigrants are by 
are, are naturally going to be an important component of that in the future. Excellent point. So then let's let's get to the the what what I think will really raise some eyebrows, but is worth getting into, <laughs> and that is the relationship between veterans' preference and civilian hiring, and issues of sort of military relationship to society. I'm I'm I have to I'm, I'm fascinated that you were willing to sort of grab this particular hot <laughs> iron, um, but I'm, I'm I want you to uh, sort of walk our audience through the uh, the reasons why you think some reforms there could help improve civil military relations? So veterans preference provides, uh, puts veterans with qualifying service, not all veterans, but veterans with qualifying service at the top of the list for competitive employment in the federal government. And that has been in various forms around for decades. And there are, after certain conflicts, there has certainly been a need to help veterans transition to civilian employment. So this has been a a, a good policy and good program at certain points. Now, however, we have some recent research that indicates that it has, um, it's made it more challenging for women Mm -hmm. to enter federal service, uh, especially in the Department of Defense, and that it will take decades for uh, women's employment in the Department of Defense to equal that of the civilian labor force because most of the veterans coming into DOD through this program or this policy are male. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you, if you have a, a kind of pipeline for veterans to become civilians, then that's another missed opportunity to bring in more civilians who will have contact with military life um, and and military organizations and their children Mm -hmm. who would have some uh, involvement, at least peripherally, through their parents' employment. Right. And uh, veterans' unemployment now, at this point, is lower than civilian unemployment. And so this might be a good time to reconsider whether we need veterans preference anymore or not. You know, veterans can still compete quite well on their own merits and they may not need an advantage in the hiring process the same way that they might have in previous generations or after previous conflicts. We also see now that in the private sector, there are a lot of veterans hiring programs. um, And so there's broader support to, to provide paths for veterans post-service employment uh, to a greater degree than maybe we have seen in the past. Mm-hmm. And so this, um, I think, considering all of that context might be uh, worthwhile in looking at whether we really need veterans' preference anymore and what at, at what cost are we keeping veterans' preference? What's the benefit and what's the cost? Because there might be some unintended consequences of that. Right. So if th- these are... Th- each of these three things that you mentioned, these three possible areas of reform or areas for potential reform, uh, is pretty big uh, and 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 mm-hmm. you know, pretty complex. Which one do you think of the three is? I, I won't ask you which one's most important, right? Because we love all of our uh, all of our ideas equally. <laughs> uh, but but I will ask you which one do you think is is uh, the most uh, achievable in the near term. Um, and which one do you think would do the most to improve connections between the civilian and military worlds? Because I'm curious if if the, if the, if both the most is the most doable one also the one that does the the most good, or is there a distinction between the two? Oh, that's a good question. So I think the easiest one to implement is um, increasing 
recruitment and accessions of immigrants. Mm -hmm. And um, that's bringing back uh, initiatives that we've previously had. And so that, I think, is not as um, it would be a much easier change to make than the other uh, recommendations that I made in the piece. Um, And we're already seeing it's a recent story about the Army uh, making some attempts this fiscal year to increase its uh, recruitment of uh, individuals who speak foreign languages again. So very similar to the kind of MAVNI program that uh, we talked about before. It's not exactly the same, but very similar. So that should be a pretty easy lift. Um, I think looking at veterans' preference might be a a more difficult one because it would require Congress. um, And it require. I think it politically it's difficult because it is something that's been, uh, it's a a benefit that's been offered for a long time. And it would be difficult for Congress to, you know, vote against veterans, so to speak. I mean, you could, you can imagine the criticism that they might get for that, although they've made other, politically controversial changes in it that, you know, it, the national defense authorization act is really long <laughs> every year. <laughs> right. So it might be something that could be worked in into negotiations at some point. So I don't think it's, it's completely unrealistic to think that that could change, but I think that one is more difficult. Gotcha. Um, I, and I think the issue of quality of life programs for service members is one area where we certainly need some additional research before specific changes could be implemented because we really need a better understanding of what are the longer and shorter term trade-offs that we might be making with these programs. What's the impact to retention in the short term versus potential future recruiting? That would be challenging to quantify. And I think we would need some additional study before knowing what would be the best way to uh, make those changes without significantly increasing costs. Um, so. I mean, I, I was, I was in a, in a different context. I was having a conversation with my, with my wife and we were saying that almost all important questions are debated between present me and future me. Right. You know, are you are you willing are you willing right. in the present to make adjustments that will make future me happy, but what might not make present me happy? And this is mm-hmm. a policy issue as well. Um, so after we've dealt with all these difficult questions, I want to end by asking you a really hard one, <laughs> and that is because uh, you now that now that you're now that you're really worked. These up have been this, so these easy. have been so easy so far, right? So I have enormous confidence in your ability to deal with this, and that is we we talk a lot and uh, uh, about changing public perceptions of the military um, and that there there is research now that shows that what used to be sort of uniformly sky high positive attitudes towards the military are declining in part related to political polarization relating to debates precisely over policies mm-hmm. that the military may or may not be adopting um, to increase diversity of the force for example and how do you think changing public perceptions of the military in an increasingly polarized society, right? Because the, ideally, the, the idea was that the military would be somehow exempt from political disagreement. But if the military mm-hmm. itself becomes a, a, a matter of political polarization, and so, uh, um, how can the military as an enterprise uh, try to break through or, or separate itself from this increasing polarization 
so that it can build a force that will be that will be appealing to all Americans. That's a good question. And I don't know that I entirely agree with the premise. Uh, I have seen those polls that show that support for the military or trust in the military is declining uh, along with trust in all other U.S. institutions. Um, But at the same time, every year, the one area where we seem to land on bipartisan agreement is the NDAA. Um, and so they've managed to continue bipartisan spirit, at least ultimately in passing the NDAA. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic, not that the military is spared from the polarization issue, but they've managed to navigate it. Um, but I, I do think I agree that it is challenging in to maintain support, public support for the military when uh, they're they're really performing their mission away. All the games are away games for, for the most <laughs> yes. part, except for things like uh, vaccine distribution. The guard has been in, right. you know, heavily disaster relief involved in that disaster relief. So they see, see that um, at home, but most of their missions are performed away. Uh, so it, I think it is challenging to maintain support for that. And one of the ways that we've done that successfully over the years is having all these installations all over the country. Um, I'd just like to see more contact between the service members on those installations and the communities around them in positive ways, not just the, you know, the, the bad behavior that gets reported, uh, but positive engagement between service members and their civilian communities to a greater extent. Right. Well, and, and, and here at the War College, of course, we promote those kinds of positive engagements through speakers programs and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and we encourage uh, our students to live out in the economy. But it is, it is an ongoing uh, and interesting challenge, right? Is that we, we want a, cr- right. a free society. We want people to make the decision to join the armed forces and the decision to stay. Um, and how do you incentivize and reward that decision, um, while also making clear that, you know, this could, you know, this is available to everybody if they, if they choose it. And so we want as many different yeah. people to at least see it as a potential choice. Right. Right. Yeah. And we want to see the all volunteer force continue and, and continue to have relatively high degrees of the public confidence. So, uh, that's, that's still the majority of Americans still report having, a great deal of confidence in the military, and we'd like to see that continue. We definitely would. And of course, work by people like you, Dr. Allison Abbey, helps us to understand how we can continue to make that going. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for your piece in Army uh, in Military Times, which we will link in the uh, in the show notes for this program. Um, and thanks for being with us today on A Better Peace. It's always, it's always great to talk to you. Thanks, Ron. It was a great conversation, as always. (laughs) And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs. Send us your suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please subscribe to A Better Peace, because if you haven't subscribed yet, I mean, come on, what's it going to take? And also, after you have subscribed to A Better Peace, please rate and review this podcast, because that's how more people can find out about us. We always want to grow the community for conversations like this one. And while this conversation is over, we all look forward to welcoming you to the next one. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. 
The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.